Seemingly, Americans are the fiercest defenders of their perceived rights and freedoms. We've seen this play out in bitter debates over, well, gun control, free speech, vaccine mandates, abortion access. It spans the political divide. Liberals and conservatives both promising to defend Americans' rights against the intrusions of big government, foreign economies, migrants and so on. Now, to get to the crux of where this obsession with individualism began, we're joined by Alex Sakaris. Alex is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Vermont and author of The Roots of American Individualism, Political Myth, in the age of Jackson, and we welcome him to our little wireless program. Alex, was there a light bulb moment when you realised that Americans were so uniquely obsessed? <laughs> well, I suppose, you know, it goes back to my upbringing. I was actually uh, an American kid growing up mostly overseas. Uh, I lived in, in Belgium until I was about 13 and did a, did a fair amount of uh, back and forth across uh, the Atlantic and and was struck early on by by some some fairly pronounced cultural differences between the US and uh, and Europe. And then as I got older and got more interested in politics, uh, of course, I started noticing that these these cultural differences also had real you know, political manifestations, as you just mentioned. Uh, I was struck by, by, among other things, by the, the centrality of individual rights and freedoms and just about every political controversy that we have over here. Uh, and also struck by the, the prevalence of what I would call the meritocratic perspective. So this, this idea that self-reliant individuals ought to be making their own way in the world and, and ought to be rewarded uh, by and large uh, according to their talent and effort that, you know, the so-called American dream and how that really permeates our political conversations over here. Take us back to the beginning. You say that the founders might have been influenced by this thinking, but it really took hold on the American psyche later. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, in the mid-20th century, there were a number of prominent historians who really took an interest in American individualism and its origins and essentially argued back then that that America as a country had been individualistic since the very beginning, since the early colonial period. Um, you know, that, that immigrants brought individualistic characteristics with them, that the relative weakness of political and religious institutions combined with a, a commercial culture over here uh, kind of imbued people with individualistic uh, values early on. But then over the last um, half century, we've seen a lot of new scholarship that really emphasizes some of the powerful countercurrents that also existed in uh, 18th century America, including during the founding period. And these counterpressures really emphasized the value of communal harmony, the sort of disruptive danger of private interest, the importance of civic virtue and the common good. And so, yeah, I certainly wouldn't say that American individualism was, wasn't uh, present in, in the founding generation. It certainly was. Um, but that there were these powerful counterpressures and that it's really really not until a generation or so after, um, in the period that I focus on, that these individualistic currents become really dominant uh, in the political rhetoric. Uh, Alex, tell me about the so-called era of the common man, where this individualistic way of thinking really kicked in. 
Yeah, so I uh, this is such a fascinating time in American history. Uh, there were so many changes roiling American society at the time. I mean, just to run through a few of them quickly, this was the period mass democracy was born in the United States. You know, the founders didn't really think of themselves as creating a democratic society. They thought of themselves as, as creating a republic. And it wasn't until around 1820 and after that you see Americans identifying themselves more closely with the idea of democracy, that you see the, the birth of mass political parties, that you see the birth of uh, sort of widespread mass partisan media. So all of that is happening. At the same time, you have these fundamental economic changes. Historians have sometimes described this period uh, as a period of market revolution. So there's this, this accelerated transition between subsistence agriculture and local barter economies into uh, an integrated market economy in which you know people are growing crops for sale in distant markets, in which their crops are being carried along canals, on, on steamships and railroads, right? And, and it was also during this time that free market ideas were popularized in the United States. So people started thinking of America as a free market society, which is quite significant. Um, and, and you make the point that the free market thinking is linked to religious thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this is one of the things that I became really fascinated in uh, and, and something I spend a quite, a, quite a bit of time exploring in the book was the, the ways in which the free market was, was first articulated and defended. And yeah, it turns out there's this pattern throughout the rhetoric of the period identifying the market as a natural phenomenon um, and government as an artificial phenomenon. And when you start digging into that a bit more deeply, what you learn is that what, what people meant by natural was that they thought of it as kind of a, a natural system governed by natural laws, sort of like the laws of physics. So economists, early economists, thought that what they were doing was discovering a set of harmonious principles, much as, as natural scientists did at the time, that, that were um, ordained by God, in essence, uh, to, uh, to maintain a kind of orderly and prosperous harmony in American society. Um, so some of the rhetoric surrounding the free market, I mean, you actually see in the debates over tariffs, for example, people arguing that interfering was with the free market was something akin to heresy. I'm, I'm trying to follow the subtleties of your argument, but explain to me briefly why this is tied particularly to evangelical Protestantism. Yeah, so, so actually there are a number of interesting connections between uh, evangelical Protestantism and American individualism. And this relates to another key set of changes that was unfolding during the Jacksonian era and a little before. Um, historians of religion describe this as, as the second great awakening. This was a period of tremendous religious revivalism, especially in the, the farther flung parts of the country where Baptists and Methodists were traveling and evangelizing. And part of the essential message of religious revival at the time was to emphasize the freedom and autonomy of the individual. So, for example, the older Calvinist notions of predestination um, had essentially said that uh, whether you were saved or damned was not fundamentally under your control, that, that God had predestined uh, your fate. Uh, and a number of these traveling 
evangelists uh, took real issue with that and argued uh, at some length, uh, sort of railed against this notion and, and, and wanted to argue emphatically that no, individuals are deeply in control of their own fate, that it's entirely up to them whether to choose uh, or reject God. Uh, and that just, yeah, so, so that's, that's one, of the, one of the important veins of connection here. I'm talking to Alex Sakaris, and this is Ellie Nell on RN. I'd like you to walk me through what you identify as uh, three particular political myths, the myth of the independent proprietor, the myth of the rights bearer, and the myth of the self-made man. Yeah, thank you. So the the yeah, the book itself is really structured around these these three myths and all, all three tell stories of American exceptionalism that are centered on the value of individual liberty. So they essentially, they're, they're, they're ways of, of, of for Americans to reassure themselves how special they are and special in their commitment to individual liberty. So the first one is the myth of the independent proprietor. And this, we sometimes think of this as the kind of Jeffersonian myth. You imagine a small farmer who owns his own land, who's subservient to no one, who works for himself, um, who is in complete control of his own work life and who therefore possesses a kind of dignity and equality, which supposedly endows him with certain civic virtues. Uh, and and the, this figure is continually contrasted in American rhetoric at the time to the European peasant or factory laborer who is working in his economic life under the thumb of some boss or master. All right, so that's one of the myths. The second myth um, says that America is a place where individual rights are the norm. So, so it celebrates the figure of the, the individual rights bearer. And here the story is, look, America is this place where the oppressed from other places in the world, and in particular, Europeans fleeing religious persecution uh, can relocate and find an expansive set of liberties and can find in particular that they enjoy a set of rights against government, right? So, so rights at the time are, are mainly imagined as a, a catalog of things that government is not allowed to do to you. <laughs> um, uh, and then third, the, the myth of the self-made man. So this imagines uh, the United States as a kind of pure meritocracy, a classless society where the individual, and again, it has to be said, we're talking about the white male individual, and this is an important part of the story I tell in the book, but, but that, that the individual can become whoever he wants to become uh, simply in virtue of, of working hard and having self-discipline. Well, that takes us to uh, the issues of uh, racial and gender hierarchy. How are these linked? Yeah, so so this was, you know, historians rightly describe this also as a time of rising white supremacy in the United States. So it was a period of tremendous uh, violence directed at Native Americans who were pushed further and farther west and displaced in horrendous ways. It was also a time of the rising profitability of uh, slavery and in particular cotton-based slavery in the South. And with that, an intensification of white supremacist ideology and belief. Um, and the, this is linked in interesting ways to, to these myths of, uh, uh, about American freedom. And, and uh, the, the first and most obvious way is simply that the, the hero celebrated in these myths, the independent farmer working his own land, the proud rights-bearing individual, the self-made man, they're invariably white men, right? Um, 
And more specifically, that the liberties that are often claimed by these white men include the freedom to subordinate and command others, right? So, so for example, the, the freedom to be master of your own domestic sphere and exercise full legal control over your wife, or the freedom to, to own slaves, right? Some of the most, some of the loudest, uh, and most outraged voices in defense of individual liberty, paradoxically, are slaveholders during this period who are arguing precisely that their property rights are being trampled or potentially trampled by uh, those who would interfere with the institution of slavery, right? Or we might talk about the the entitlement claimed by white men at the time to uh, Native American land. So th there's that aspect to it. And then the, the, the deepest layer, I think, and, you know, and here, historians have written a lot about the, the creation of white identity during this period. You know, Europeans were coming to America and discovering that they were white and discovering what that meant. Um, and what you see over and over is that the, the virtues associated with individual freedom are presented as uh, elements or attributes of whiteness, right? So hard work and responsibility and ingenuity and the capacities for rational planning, for example, these are attributes of whiteness in the stories that are told at the time. And, and at the same time, these very qualities are denied over and over to people of color, be they Native Americans or African Americans, right, who are presented as incapable of hard work, incapable of responsibility, incapable of the kinds of self-discipline required to thrive. So one, one person's freedom at the expense of others, but so as well as entrenching white supremacy, this history goes some way towards explaining, well, Trumpism. Yes. Um, so there are, there are fascinating parallels between the Jacksonian era and, and in particular the politics of the Jacksonian Democratic Party, which was really kind of coming into being in the 1820s and Trump and, and, and the sort of Trumpist movement and, and interesting parallels too between the figure, figure of Andrew Jackson and the figure of Trump himself. But yeah, I mean, um, both of these movements, um, so the, the Jacksonian Democrats were uh, a populist movement. Uh, his, uh, I think historians commonly describe this as the kind of the first populist movement. So you see Jacksonian politicians uh, presenting themselves as spokespersons uh, for ordinary people uh, and ordinary white Americans in particular against uh, political elites and economic elites. Um, who are supposed to be undermining their uh, their economic prospects. It's also a movement centered on sort of racial resentment. So the Jacksonian Democrats over and over again um, not only celebrate individual liberty and expansive individual liberty for whites and white men in particular as their central commitment, but also tell these stories about how this liberty is being systematically endangered, either by haughty elites looking down their noses at ordinary people, and that of course has some real has some real resonance with uh, the populist uh, flavor of Trumpism in America. And also uh, highlighting the danger that that people of color ostensibly pose to uh, to white freedoms, and there too you see important continuities with today. Alex, we're out of time, but I'd like to grasp at a straw. Could Americans' addiction to individualism be harnessed as a force for good? Yes, I mean I should say, and I'm glad. Thank you for that question. I, I don't. Um, 
condemn American individualism entirely in the book, and 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 I've probably given that impression so far. But but actually, part of the good news of the book is that the the languages and values associated with individual freedom in America turn out to be tremendously malleable. So over the course of the 19th century, you see them appropriated for many different political purposes. So you see, for example, abolitionists making use of an expansive understanding of individual rights. It was that they, who, in fact, who popularized the idea of human rights and, and using that to press for inclusion uh, uh, and wide, wider economic opportunity and anti-discrimination and anti-racist agendas, in addition, of course, to the, the abolition of slavery. Um, you see labor activists taking up and reinterpreting the idea of personal independence to press uh, sort of early criticisms of capitalism and capitalist exploitation and arguing that 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 represents a kind of betrayal of the original vision of economic self-ownership and and being your own boss and owning your own land. So there are there are possibilities to be mined in an egalitarian direction. I only hope that the American left read your book, uh, Alex. I've been talking to Alex Sakaris, <laughs> Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Vermont. His new book is The Roots of American Individualism, Political Myth in the Age of Jackson, published by uh, Princeton University Press. Coming up, beloved listeners, we revisit the legacy of musician, philosopher, educator, Sunichi Suzuki. <laughs> 